Hello and welcome to, to Talking Codswarp. And it's been a while since you've heard from me. Uh, I am flying solo on this one because Gemma's not too well at the moment. But fear not, gentle listeners. I have a wonderful, brilliant guest. It's somebody I've wanted to have on the show for a very long time. And I have asked the chap and then I've had to rearrange things. So it's one of these long time coming things. It is the one and only Mr. Chris McKeon. Chris, how are you, my friend? Doing very well, James. Thank you for having me today. So Chris and I have known each other. For, it's probably been, what, a couple of years, maybe even more now, actually, that we, we've been in contact with each other. But obviously, I know about you, but the the, uh, the Salty Tapos listeners don't. So, Chris, tell us a bit about yourself. What's your background, please? Sure. Well, I'm, I'm an American. I'm from um, Southern California. A city called Whittier, which is East Los Angeles. Um, I grew up there and I lived there until a few years ago, until I moved up to uh, Utah, um, which is in the Rocky Mountains area of um, the Western United States. And I moved here for, to go to school to get a computer science degree at uh, Utah Valley University, which we call UVU up here. And um, and I completed the degree a couple of years ago. Um, I right around the time that COVID hit, uh, so there were some delays in getting work. There was, you know, were some work um, situations, thankfully, in the pipeline though. So I worked for, uh, I worked for uh, the U.S. government for a little while. I moved to Maryland, uh, working with uh, computer things, and then I moved back here to Utah for uh, another work opportunity, and uh, I work with databases now. And I live in a city called Ogden, Utah. That's fairly far north, uh, Utah. I was down in the Provo area. Let's just say a little, a few mi- about 90 miles south of where I am now. If anyone wants to look up a map, they can. <laughs> <laughs> and I was going to ask Chris, because obviously you're, you're working with computers. Was so that something you always wanted to do? So the, the thing I always, I always like to ask people, and I don't know if I have even asked you this during our conversation, which is, what did you want to do when you grew when you were a child? What was you when you look when you're a child and you think about the world? What did you want to do when you grew up? Can't answer. Thankfully, uh, first thing I wanted to do was be an astrophysicist. Oh, I found very good. Uh, thank you. I found things like stars and planets, and um, and space and such um, very interesting, fascinating things. And and um, and so I studied a lot about um, personally about them. Um, astrophysics but I, I i soon found just uh, i happened to talk to a man who was an astrophysicist and and he um unintentionally kind of burst the bubble a little bit when i realized that the things that i thought that an astrophysicist did meaning you know you know maybe going into space and such and 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 that might have been a little um yeah. bit of a pipe dream yeah. but but it, but it was just a sense that most things were done by computers now which is a little ironic, but most of the things that I thought an astrophysicist would do were, were now kind of taken out of the hands of astrophysicists. So I I thought about wanting to do some creative writing and maybe music, but I realized that although I still indulge in creative writing and play the piano and such, I realized that, you know, to on the practical side of things, uh, it would be very, not impossible, very difficult to make a, a living uh, through those means. So I, I shifted to... Um, to computer science because I realized that it could blend some of my interests, um, but also be um, very a very stable profession at uh, really in, in any really economic condition. So um, that's how I you know 
in a practical way, but also in this in a somewhat to, you know self-reflective way came to uh, working with computers. Yeah, it's that moment for a lot of you know people when they well, but certainly with the children, you have what is unfortunately the realist moment that you work that you find out however much you thought you cannot do everything you thought you could do. I wanted to yeah. do various things, I'd become a vet and realize that was not going to be in the uh, the pipeline for me to do that. Um, <laughs> I was very interested that when you said Chris about piano playing, so you say you still play a little bit. Is it something that you if you learned that did you learn to play the piano as a child that it's something you carried on with to, to a small degree or could you tell us a bit about that? Absolutely. Yes. Um yes I learned um I took piano lessons, um, and I'm happy to say that it's I have carried forward with it the then through more than a small degree. I still play, try to play the piano every day, and I can I wouldn't call myself a um const, by no means a concert level or, or 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 capable pianist, but I I'm a I would call myself a modestly competent pianist. I can certainly play songs. I can certainly do a little bit of composing on my own. Um, I will give you an example. Um, this isn't uh, music in the sense of like playing notes, but um, very uh, long story short, not very long, but the point is very short version is I recently discovered after hearing about them a lot, uh, the folk singers, the American folk singer group, Peter, Paul and Mary. Um, yeah, I've heard of them. Yes, and for your listeners, they are they are a group that began around 1961. They probably met in the late 50s in New York, and three people from different backgrounds. Peter was from New York, Mary was from uh, Kentucky, and Paul was from Michigan. But they centered around what they call the Greenwich Village area, which is probably a very um, um, active music scene. And they became friends and start, had started singing folk songs that existed, wrote their own music. They were all very talented. Peter and Paul played the guitar. Mary was already a somewhat established singer. And over the next 50 years or so, until Mary's death in 2009, um, they were probably, they were certainly among the, the, the most successful, possibly the most successful uh, folk singer trio in American modern history, certainly, possibly in American history. And they were, they were wonderful. My, my, my mom's side of family is more musical. My uncle's a concert violinist. My grandma is also a pianist and organist and such. And so they, and they have a kind of a, a maybe because they come from a little, you know, farther into the Midwest, uh, the, um, Wyoming, Montana area. There was a bit of a folk feel to, to the, the, there is a folk feel to the family in certain ways in terms of music they like. And so they always, my grandma and my mom a bit, they talked about Peter, Paul and Mary, but it's only recent that I, you can't help but kind of in this in this um, country grow up without hearing some Peter Paul and Mary music, especially this song that I'm thinking about, which is Puff the Magic Dragon. But recently, I started listening to some of their music. Yeah, it's wonderful stuff. I started listening to some of their music, and I listened to Puff the Magic Dragon. It sounds, I thought it was wonderful. But I found out, I like to explore and find out the history of these songs, and I found out that it was, the lyrics are based on a, it, the, the song was written by Peter Yarrow of Peter Paul and Mary, but he based the lyrics upon um, a play written by a man named his friend uh, Leonard Lipton, passed away a couple of years ago. Um, and Peter was kind enough to seek him out. He was a friend of a friend, really, and said, hey, I, I based, I wrote the music, but I, meaning Peter, but I based the lyrics largely on this poem you wrote. Uh, can I, may I, I want to credit you as a co-writer. So that's very kind of him. The point is that there is a lost verse. If you know anything about Puff the Magic Dragon, it ends really on a sad note that, 
it's about the loss of childhood innocence where these children grow up and maybe move away from their imaginary friends. Who knows? But but um, Huff the Magic Dragon, once Je- his friend Jackie Peeper grows up, essentially, um, sadly slips into his cave. That's the last line of the of, the, of this verse, meaning he, he's he's lost his childhood friend. But there was a happy uh, verse that was lost, and apparently um, described how Puff meets another child, and they continue and have happy adventures together. Well, um, I took it upon myself, I just found that out last week, just to write a verse. Um, in fact, if you bear with me, I'll just um, I'll, I'll read the verse. It's, it's very brief. Please just, do, yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting to... I mean, Puff the Magic Dragon is a song that most children know um, and will have heard within their, their childhood. I still remember hearing on, like, tapes of children's songs and things like that. And I did not know there was this kind of extra stuff. So, yeah, I'm very interested, Chris. I'm sure everyone well, else be to, to learn more about it. It's, it's, well, it's you, interesting stuff. Well, then I, I will uh, direct people, if they want to know more about this song, to maybe look up the lyrics online and they can see get the full context but my verse is this night brightens at sunrise darkness lifts at dawn huff rose from his slumber hearing birds sing happy song he ventured outside his cave and leapt back with a shock there he saw a black-haired girl sleeping on a rock she woke and smiled bright her name was amy mars she asked puff if he could fly and take her to the stars huff's big eyes were shining and his joy was without end. And with great unfurled wings, he flew with his new friend. And that's the and that's the verse that I wrote that that I hope, you know, is a, a happier ending to what to, what exists. I love the fact that you've told us about that. And the other thing I like, Chris, is this is stuff that it, it's levels of your talent that I wasn't even aware of. So oh, for me, you. this is an educational thing. And you have gone like, because I learned to play the piano when I was younger, but the unfortunate thing is I've never, I never continued with it. And it's something yeah. I kind of regret. So it's probably something I should give myself a, a, a kick to, to look at doing. Um, you, I think you've inspired me, sir, to carry on with that. Oh, thank you uh, so much. My next question is going to be, uh, what could you, I mean, you were saying like you, you've done bits of work with government stuff. You've done, you're doing database work at the moment. What can you tell me or what are you allowed to tell me about the kind of work you've done as a job? Oh, well, it's just simply it's just um, um, making sure that uh, the company databases are, are up and running. And uh, there's nothing secret about that, thankfully. Just that the company databases are up and running and that uh, um, there aren't any breakdowns and uh, and that the, big, the databases can do backups and such, like any database. And in any environment, and it's certainly not as not nearly as uh, stressful because the databases are that we have are very stable, and you know you're not doing transactions or anything. It's a lot less stressful than say a banking environment where you have you have to have transactions happening at every moment of every day, and you have to make sure that your databases are are work up and working perfectly, or at least as best you can. Now, I have never worked in a banking environment. Um, I have to. I can relate. I can relate (laughs) to your comment. It can get stressful. (laughs) I believe it. I believe it. And so, but I will say this: the the banks where I where I go, the bank, the branches, or whatever you call them in your in your in UK, but the branches where I go, 
the 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 cus the um the staff are always very they seem very relaxed and very calm. Maybe this because they're away from the databases, but they they um we have good banks here. We have good people here working there. So kudos to them for their for their uh, cool demeanors and friendliness. That's good. And what would you say um, for your job is like the most challenging and rewarding part of it? What do you really like about your work? What I like about it right now, certainly, is that it gives me, um, as part of my job, time to, as you often will have downtime, it gives me a chance and, and the flexibility to continue studying, um, you know, related fields to my work so that I can prepare to get one, a, a graduate degree. Um, cause I have an undergraduate called bachelor's or undergraduate degree in computer science. Uh, I want to get a graduate or master's degree in cybersecurity. And so one of the things I really enjoy about my job, besides the people, certainly, and the very friendly people and the very competent and experienced and intelligent people that are working with me, I'm working with them. Uh, it gives me time, flexible amount of time to study, to continue to study, to prepare, to get my mastery, which I hope to start. Um, it probably in the in the fall or autumn, as you might call it, we call it, tend to call it fall over here. Uh, maybe around October or so to start the degree and try to get it done in the next year, year and a half. Well, that's excellent. I mean, I can tell you from like doing my own postgraduate studies, it is very rewarding when you've done them. You do generally feel very good after you've done it. It's it's something that's always worth doing. Um. And what I have to ask, and you can choose to answer this or not, is the thing you least like about work. Other well, than the fact fine. that I guess, but I guess nobody really, you know, if everyone's really honest with themselves, they don't like going into work. They would love to all have won the lottery yes. and sit at home and relax. But <laughs> that isn't uh, the chance of that happening is so astronomically high. <laughs> oh, I understand. Well, in the practical sense, it's it's um some you know, and maybe I should. I might look back upon these days and think, well, I, I should have been grateful to have it so calm. But is that, you know, the, since the databases are so stable, not a whole lot uh, new or, or or sudden happens. And so um, you could do what you need to do every day. But then after that, you the flexibility that I mentioned sometimes is very open in the sense of, well, I have a while left. What do I do? Um so there's that on the practical side, on the creative side, since I have, and we'll, I'm sure we'll get to this, uh, I know we'll talk about some of my creative things I'm doing. It means that, you know, some there's the diversion away from other things that are not just simply, oh, I want to be doing, writing this little story or, or doing, or writing this little bit of um, verse or something. No, it, there are some things that I am doing, but I have to divert time away from those things for a few, <laughs> few hours most days. Excuse me. And so there is that sense of divided a divided attention. And I think that's probably the best, the best way to describe it. So you have to divide attention for a little while from one thing and then to another. And, and, um, I don't always like doing that. Uh, I like to be able to focus upon something, but, but I, but I can honestly say that I'm never a so one track minded, even with things that I want to do, uh, like on creative side of things that I can't, uh, that I lose sight or track of other things in my life. So, um, I can multitask, I suppose. And I can keep a perspective, but um, having to having to turn away completely for something for a few hours is uh, is is not not always the uh, the most uh, agreeable, but that's fun. 
No, I know what you mean. It can be a bit of a pain to kind of like have to. It, it's certainly doable to multitask, but it can be annoying. And certainly if it pulls you away from doing something you really want to do. Um, now, there is the possibility that Chris has shown himself to have some kind of psychic ability because he touched upon the fact that we were going to discuss his creative side, which is literally what I was thinking of getting to going to discuss. <laughs> sure. um, so how to explain how we got how we know each other is the fact that Sean, who has been on the show as a guest discussing things with us, um, was doing some audio work with you. But yes. I feel that I would not do it justice if I don't let you tell the story of how you got into the frankly in my humble opinion, they are so good, the things you, you create, they could be professional. But tell us about how you got into this whole world of audio drama and other dramas, because I find it amazing. I know the people listening will find it amazing. And I'm being very honest, when I talk to people I know, I'm always telling them how good the stuff you create is. So please tell us more. Well, thank you for your kind words and appraisal. Um, uh, I, and I hope and I hope to continue to keep making these creative works to, at, at such a level. Um, I am a, doc, a fan of Doctor Who. Uh, it starts with Doctor Who. Um, I, to give a sense of tied to my personal background, my family, mainly my mom's side of the family, um, really, well, they probably did this too, and I, certainly my family has done this, which is that most of the television that my family probably even now watches, but certainly growing up as a child, um, was British television, uh, watched through um, uh, our local public broadcasting service, so PBS. And um, which, for whatever reason, uh, carried a lot of British programming. And British meaning usually English, but uh, on occasion maybe a little bit of Irish or something like that. But we watched a lot of programs, and... Um, I'm trying to think of some of them. Just they were from all times, you know. All these programs had already stopped airing, but um, but they they were showing reruns of things like there was a comedy series called Are You Being Served, um, which I think is back in the 70s or something. And we thought it was, <laughs> yeah, that's going back a bit. Yeah, <laughs> I believe it. I believe it was a lot of fun. We we enjoyed it. Um, and then slightly slightly more recent. But it was still, I think it already had aired. It was it were things like um, Inspector Morse and uh, the Granada series starring Jeremy Brett, Sherlock Holmes. Um, I think other programs, but, but just programs such as these, Inspector Lewis, that's I think much more recent, maybe back in the mid 2000s. But, um, but very good, good, or Inspector Lindley starring Nathaniel Parker. Uh, um, the, the point is that we saw a lot of uh, British dramas, usually a little bit of comedy, um, but much more so the dramas. But anyway, I was immersed in, in watching a lot of British television, and I still am. I still am, definitely. And so um, coming forward, you know, as you know, becoming a teenager and such, I found I still wanted to do things like creative writing and and. and it's a while ago now, but, but I wrote this uh, when I was a teenager. I wrote a book called Time's Champion, which is um, a book set in, the, in Doctor Who. It was at the time the regeneration story of the Sixth Doctor. Very long story short, when I started watching Doctor Who, um, shortly before the um, the new series got started, it's around the turn of the millennium. So a while ago now, but you know, 
comparatively much more recent than like the classic series run. Yes. I I um I discovered that a few things in my online studies about the program's history that that it, that it had stopped transmitting in the end of the 80s, but on, in the mid 80s there was a, a, a hiatus uh, during the Colin Baker years, and so an entire um, season, or you might call it series, was lost. It was never uh, produced or transmitted. And the sixth Doctor was actor was fired, essentially sacked, whatever you want to call it, to make way for Sylvester McCoy, probably to have a clean break from a lot of the drama of the mid '80s behind the scenes of the program. Well, and, and Mac- interesting, McCoy is the certainly for people my age is probably the person that, if you like, you know, you most would remember as, as Dodd too, because certainly from my youth, that's the one that's always stuck in my head. I was never a, a massive avid viewer of him. Uh, I got more into it when, it, you know, we got the new stuff. But I do recognise that point you mentioned, McCoy, because I do remember as a child seeing that on television and being like, yep, yeah, I knew what it was. That was Dot 2. It was on a, a reasonably a time where I could watch it and scared the heck out of me. I definitely remember that. So that oh, yeah. comment of, of, being, of wanting to hide, because I remember talking to my mother about that, and she said, yeah, Dot 2 was scary. And I remember just seeing episodes of his stuff and finding it as a child scary, particularly on the werewolf at a... a uh, Circus, but you know we're on to a different ta- uh, oh, tangent there. So <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Chris, I've taken away from you. No, you're fine. I think it's good because it shows that you you like it too, and it's it's kind of a cultural thing, and then it's really made its way across across the Atlantic to here. Um, I mentioned Colin Baker's stuff because I think it was something about the fact that his era um, had an abrupt end, and then just a shift. Um, one episode just has him leaving with his companion, played then by Bonnie Langford, Mel playing Mel Bush, Melanie Bush. They leave in the TARDIS, and the very next episode, suddenly he's being shot out of the sky, and and he suddenly regenerates. He's shot out of the sky by Kate O'Mara's The Ronnie, and then and then he just regenerates into Sylvester McCoy. But that that abruptness kind of fired in my mind the sense that maybe there's a story here to tell, and and so I I ultimately wrote. And there's a much longer story here, but I'll just keep it brief. And I ultimately wrote that story called Time's Champion, which detailed the Six Doctors' regeneration. And so that, you know, I that set me at least on a on a long path of being able to write fiction. And, and that's a long that's a number of years ago, of course. But I and I went to school, after, you know, after that, and and just kept busy, again, diverted attention, as we mentioned before. But about five years ago, I um. By now, it's 2018, uh, just early to, 18. Just take you back to that for a minute, Chris. Was sure. that the first thing you would have ever kind of really written that was like a fan fiction kind of story? Oh, yes. Yes, definitely. Um, and it was uh, – I'll give you a little – to give you a little more background, um, what made it notable was that I contacted uh, this a Doctor Who author named Craig Hinton. And I guess to give the give you the full context, if you know anything about Colin Baker's Doctor, his last series, The Trial of the Time Lord, uh, in 1986, featured his Doctor being put on trial. It was kind of a reflection of the ser- the background turmoil of the series, and he's put on trial by the Time Lords, his own people. But his prosecutor is a character called the Valdeyard. Well, the Valdeyard, as played by Michael Jaston, is revealed at the end of this 14-part adventure by the Master, then played by Anthony Lee, to be the Doctor himself. Some weird future version, some dark future version of the Doctor that wants to steal his regenerations. 
so that really ignited my interest in trying to connect the dots and close the gap along. Who is this Valeyard? Where does he come from? Why does he exist? When I did my research back then, I discovered, well, does the Valeyard ever come back on screen in the, maybe the Sylvester McCoy era? No. And he still has not, even now, nearly 40 years later. So there was that sense of, okay, an abrupt change. He suddenly regenerates, and there's this character called the Valeyard that's out there. That's this dark future reflection or version or maybe just the future of the Doctor in general. Well, there's a story to tell there. I contacted through my research um, and realizing that at that time, the television series was coming back at that point. But uh, there, in the in the what they call the wilderness years in the 1990s, in the beginning of the 2000s, there were uh, the, the forefront of Doctor Who fiction was being produced with books. And one of the book authors was a man named Craig Hinton. And he had written a book called Millennial Rights, which was a Six Doctor book from the mid 90s. And it featured the, the Six Doctor dealing with the Valeyard a little bit. He's trapped in this all this strange altered reality where he starts turning into the Valeyard. Mm-hmm. So not the real not the real Valeyard, but him kind of his own thoughts manifested as the Valeyard. But so Craig Hinton had written about the Valeyard character. And so I thought, well, I should talk to him. Maybe he has insights. And we became, you know, online friends and and we shared ideas about the Valeyard, and Craig must have seen, seen something within me uh, at the time and said, well, I think that you have the talent to do some writing, so let's write a, we can write a story together. And we try to, I can try to pitch it to the BBC, another book, that can deal with, you know, the Six Doctors' regeneration and his a confrontation with the Valeyard. And uh, I remember meeting Craig, um, came over to the well, – I said that I live in Los Angeles, so there's a big Doctor Who convention there called Gallifrey One and um craig came and visited and we had some we shared some very nice ideas um with the intention of eventually writing the story but not too long afterwards craig hinton passed away very suddenly um from a heart attack i believe and so um a lot of i took a risk doing this but there were on the online forums at the time which still exists um a lot of people were very sad about craig's death of course but craig had said that he was going to write this book, but he had a co-author. He just never named the co-author. Well, then I thought, well, then people, I saw people's responses and they said, oh, we'll never get to read this book now. Mm. And then I thought, and I thought to myself, it's, Craig can't do anything more, but I can. And so I, I took the risk and I went online and, and, uh, and announced myself in a way and said, I am this, I am the co-author and I promise I'm going to find a way to, to publish this. And so I was very shortly after I was approached by Big Finish Mm-hmm. Um, through Simon Garrier to um, to uh, saying that they wanted to publish the, the the book and they and they asked if I could work with them and I said yes. They but Simon was honest. He said very low. There's a very low chance we can actually we can do it because we would have to get a a one time license to publish a novel. We have audio licenses. We don't have novel licenses. Uh, but we want to try. But and sadly it didn't work out. Before that same reason, very immediately afterwards, I was contacted by a man named David J. Howe, who runs, still runs now, uh, Telos Publishing. They had a license to do Doctor Who novellas. They couldn't get the license to do a book, but they had the, unlike Big Finish, which had the infrastructure to audios, not novels. James, uh, David's um, group, Telos Publishing, could already have the infrastructure to publish books. So... Over the next couple of years, I wrote and we edited Times Champion and it was released. So I say all that because 
well, how does this get me to what my audio dramas? Well, because I wrote and because it was published and it was published as a charity book for the British Heart Foundation because Craig Hinton died of a heart attack. Um, Time Chevy made a bit of a made an impact. Uh, the extent of which only maybe even recently I'm discovering in that some people that I don't know or I'm introduced to them by mutual friends to help me with some of these audio stories. They'll so say, oh, you're, you're, you're the Chris McKean. You're the guy that wrote mm-hmm. Time Champion. <laughs> so that's very, that's very nice. So I made an impact there. And then, like I say, now circling back, I go to – that was my first fiction. I made an impact, but then I went to school and you know went through school and everything, then went to um, uh, college and then got my degree and such. Well, about midway through my degree uh, in 2018, um, I uh, we we hit a milestone in terms of Doctor Who fandom, which is that it was 2018 was the centennial hundred years since Roger Delgado's birth. And Roger Delgado, for your listeners, probably know, but he was the man to play the, who played the Master during John Pertwee's years back in the 1970s. Uh, but no, and Roger Delgado um, was meant to have, and this is kind of you're gonna find a theme with me in my creative writing. Just as Colin Baker was should have had more stories and should have had a proper regeneration story that dealt with the valet art. Roger Delgado was meant to have uh, one last story because he had asked to leave because um, he felt that he was losing work because he was people thought that there was a perception that he was uh, a regular on Doctor Who when in fact he was uh, an occasional guest. It was that popular of a role. So there were plans to have, give him one last story called The Final Game, which would have aired in 1974. But Roger Delgado died suddenly on the on the 18th of June, 1973, uh, out in Turkey while filming a French drama a comedy, I think, called La, La Cloche Tibetaine, which is the Tibetan bell in French. Uh, and he died in a car accident. Um, they were trying to get to a set and they were behind schedule and the taxi driver rolled them off a cliff. It's very sad. So, so, yeah. So everyone in the in the car, I think, where four men were killed. And so that last story, the final game, was never made. It was replaced with Planet of the Spiders, which is John Pertwee's regeneration story. His last story as the Doctor. Well, when Delgado's birthday is the first of March, 1918. So around that time in 2018, I. I realized, you know, it's the centennial. We should do something f- to honor Roger Delgado's memory. And then I just thought, well, I have a, I have an experience with writing, prose, not uh, not audio, but but I have an experience with writing. And I thought, well, why don't we, ri- why don't I write the final game, um, and tell the story of his his last adventure? Just to 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 ask you a question, to to step in for a minute, Chris. When you wrote, you were told about the the story you had written, the first kind of thing you wrote. What age were you at that point? Oh, goodness. Oh, what was I'm trying to think here? Oh, goodness. About 13 or so. So for, for anyone listening, I want you to just take a step back and listen to that. At 13, Chris had the, the gumption and the bravery to reach out to authors and then to get things published, which you will find people who are adults do not have the ability and the bravery to do. So I seriously take my hat off to you because that is a heck of a thing to have done well thank you so much oh it was it was it was um i just i try to you know be a positive person and live my life with the idea that um through through being active and 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 uh, faithful in this way that you in a way you're already acting without 
arrogance, but the humble application of, of confidence that you um that you what you want to do, your goals, you've already completed them. You're just uh, making sure they get done. <laughs> so everything is certain. Just make sure they're, they're complete. Um, so thank you. But um, but yeah, I can say with some I can say with some truth. Chris is almost annoyingly nice and pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I do. I, I really, I really try to live this way. Um, thank you so much. But, um, but uh, yeah, I, I, um, the, the, again, talking about that confidence though, you see, there is a difference in that times champion was a book. Mm. The final game as it is now is an audio drama. So there was that, there was that daunting that sense of changing writing styles because, uh, you know when I when when I wrote Times Champion Doctor Who was already back on television and the books the book era was already kind of bygone, not quite not quite a relic but it was kind of becoming in the past. But it was a nice it was close enough to that book era that people were who had actively read the books of Doctor Who probably there was an audience. Well, by the time I come around to Times actually meet the final game, um, remember we're we're now kind of getting into the Jodie Whittaker era and so. Mm-hmm. The books were no longer the, f- the forefront of Doctor Who fiction, and so there wasn't probably as much of an audience. And so I thought to myself, this obviously isn't going to be filmed, but I realized I, I, I can't get the audience that, if, that I might do if this were a filmed adventure, because most of the actors have passed away. Um, it's not the 1970s anymore. I don't have, and I would love to have that sense of realism, that verisimilitude of the style. So I, I realized, well, the, the real, old, not alternate in the sense it doesn't matter, but alternative to television media where you can get Doctor Who audience interested is audio drama. And so thanks to Roger to Big Finish Productions. And so I just realized, you know, I need to make this an audio drama. That way it'll have the impact that it deserves. So I, I started writing the scripts, pretty much just self-taught, um, really self-taught in the sense I don't know how to write an audio script. Um, uh, but I I just got found an open source of just a kind of online uh, script screenwriting software called Trelby. Uh, you don't have to pay for it, that means. And, and I just started writing. It was very easy to, to grasp. And maybe I just have an, an, an innate or at least a trained sense of drama at this point. Of, okay, this is how you do things and such. And people were interested enough in the in the idea of the final game that I kind of posted online. Hey, I'm doing this story. Can anyone does anyone want to take part? And they said yes. Now, but I I should add one little element to this, which is in talk about the quality of the the drama. I think that anyone can write um, any type of fiction, but it takes to make it very good. It takes craft, meaning you really think about what you're writing, you edit it. You design it, you plan it and such. And in the case of audio drama set in a pre-existing franchise like Doctor Who, you go out of your way to find, at least I did, find actors who sound like the original uh, character actors. Like Find someone who sounds like John Perfect. Find someone who sounds like Roger Delgado or like Nicholas Courtney, like Liz Slade and such. And that made all the difference, in my opinion, beyond my writing to, um, to, to make this story very special. And that's the thing I really like with what you do, Chris. It isn't just the simple. I mean, you and I have had these conversations. I've tried to turn my hand to doing some some voices for you, but I've never been able to get myself as close as I wanted to do. Uh, for example, uh, Sherlock Holmes. I just did, I did not feel I could do it to a level that you would want. But that's the thing I love about what you produce. It is 
in some cases, and in nearly all cases, eerily close. <laughs> eerily <laughs> close. Think, yeah. It's um, some of that is luck. Uh, mm-hmm. Just good fortune in finding actors who can, whether they're no, well-known or sometimes just people that come out of the woodwork, meaning people that have the talents like you or I mm-hmm. and have the, the passion and can do maybe a lot of good things, but they can do one good thing remarkably well. And so I was yes. fortunate to find, I was fortunate to find um, Marshall Tankersley, who um, did a wonderful John Pertwee voice, Terry Cooper, who did a wonderful uh, Roger Delgado voice. And um, I, I knew one thing, you could, kind of a, if it start, there's a hierarchy of recognizable voices. You want everyone to sound wonderful and have good quality sound. But you, if you start at the top, meaning your main hero and your main villain, the doctor, the master, you, I knew that I had to find two actors that sounded so much like those original voices that you, it, it, your first time listening, you would think, oh, my goodness, they, we have John Pertwee and Roger Delano on a Skype call or just in the recording studio. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I am, I am very pleased with this, how the story turned out. Uh, and it, because um, I feel that those voice actors really carried, carried the adventure and made it sound real, made it sound like it was. As they say in Through Big Finish, it was Saturday tea time in 1974 all over again. So it's wonderful. <laughs> and, and it is very interesting when you talk about finding people who can do these voices amazingly well. Because Sean, who we both know, uh, yes. he does the Doctor. And when I say the Doctor, I mean the first Doctor. And he, I've heard his work and he sent me uh, things to sometimes listen to that he's done where I honestly couldn't tell it was not an original recording. <laughs> where it's, it just you, you and he, you know it's astounding he does a tom baker as well which again <laughs> just wow yes well no you're right i mean since you mentioned sean we might as well take a moment to talk about his story um when i wrote the final game i um to take a step back and give you the context of why i did these stories the, the audio versions I don't want to make it sound as if I just thought of the story out of nowhere in 2018. Shortly after writing Time's Champion, so go back to maybe the very end of the 2000s, I wanted to keep writing things. So I wrote prose versions, short story versions of the final game and some other stories uh, for fun. And so I had a – it's a very different version of the final game, but there's a version of the final game from like 2009 or something out there. I think you might be able to find it online. It's a, It's like a novella. It's probably ten thousand words, and and it was, but it was, and the, there are similarities, but it's very different from the the audio version. Well, I two thousand nine is important, and this will tie to probably some other things we talk we'll talk about later. Yeah. But uh, that that's the year that Nicholas Courtney was supposed to appear in a Sarah Jane Adventures, which is a spinoff to Doctor Who, a Sarah Jane Adventures story called The Wedding of Sarah Jane Smith. But because of ill health, he wasn't able to film, and if. If there's anything your listeners should know about me as a Doctor Who fan is that I love the Brigadier, the character that Nicholas mm-hmm. Courtney played, Brigadier Lethbridge. Oh, yeah. Yes. And so when I learned that he couldn't film in that adventure for that adventure, I was heartbroken. And so I was writing these other little short stories that were kind of in the unit era. So I was kind of situated in late Perchway, early Tom Baker, trying to write some stories. Um, you know, the final game, I had written that. I was writing a trio of stories with the fourth Doctor and the Roger Delgado Master. I think I, I mentioned just that, not to go on a tangent, but simply to say that I was trying my hand at doing continuity connections 
which I recommend to anyone that wants to do to write fiction, to write continuity connections about characters that never met on screen. Tom Baker's Doctor never met Roger Delgado's master. Um, but because these stories feature the brigadier, and I was so distraught and heartbroken that he just simply in a selfish way, like, oh, we won't get to see the brigadier with David Tennant's doctor. But but also as a, on a human level, knowing that well, Nicholas Courtney is ill. He's in his yeah. 80s. He's, he's unwell. And, and, and I feared that he would pass away. And he did. Um, but because of that, I had to move away from that creative space. I said, I, I can't I can't touch it right now. I can't write stories with a brigadier at this time. I have to let that. I know I sound a little overwrought, but a period of mourning, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And so no, I can understand that because you do. If you are, I mean, you see it throughout. So it's not just something you do. If you are heavily invested and interested in something that is, you know, people have it where they lose. The, when a, music, a musician dies or an actor dies or somebody they follow. You, as a fan, you become invested in things, and I totally understand that. You always feel, as a fan of something, sad when someone who you have followed and you've known the work passes away. It's a natural thing to happen. Um, yes. And it's also interesting, if I can interject, when you were talking about having a continuity flow with the yes. work. I was when I was doing some work with the, you know, doing script writing uh, when uh, some previous work on that. They were taught by that the importance of checking throughout a run of a uh, script or anything of that nature. Does everything f- flow correctly? And if you are trying to make something where characters who have not met before meet. Can you create something within a story that will make sense? You know, you can't just suddenly say, oh, yeah, this person knows this person because a viewer or listener would go, well, hang on. There's nothing that links that. So you have to, if it's not there, as you've said, create some kind of continuity to it links. Well, I can. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm just saying that you're absolutely right. I can think of it as a brief example and something unrelated to but Star Trek. Mm -hmm. Uh, An exact example, parallel of what you just said is. There's currently a series called Star Trek Strange New Worlds, which focuses on Captain Pike's era of, the, of, of Star Trek, right? On the Enterprise. Yeah. The really early Star Trek, yeah. Really early Star Trek, yes. And if you go back to the original series of William Shatner's Captain Kirk, there's a two-part story called The Menagerie, where they feature mm-hmm. the now crippled, uh, scarred and radiation-burned crippled Captain Pike. There is a line of dialogue where... Um, a uh, 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 kind of a uh, Starbase uh, Commodore asks, Commodore Mendez asks Kirk, do you know uh, Captain Pike? And Kirk says, yes, we met, uh, and I think he said we met once, but he certainly says we met when he was promoted to fleet captain. Well, so you have that anchor. Okay, but yes, they met each other, but it was when Pike became a fleet captain. So it suggests a later era than what we kind of knew. Well, just last week, um, or a couple weeks ago, there was a Star Trek Strange New Worlds episode where they featured a new uh, actor named Paul Wesley playing now Lieutenant Kirk, who's mm-hmm. brought over to the Enterprise because the two ships, the Enterprise and the Farragut, are doing a joint mission. Well, he meets Pike, but they to but then if you're if you're strictly going with the continuity, you think well they can't meet till Pike is a fleet captain. So what do they do? Mm. They they give Pike a temporary promotion to fleet captain. <laughs> Yeah, but at least they've done it. At least it's not that thing with the, the shoehorn stuff in it. And you're like, what? <laughs> yeah. How? So it's a, how exactly? But you can, you find that's the thing that with with continuity is you find the wiggle room to to make things work. Um. So, but so, so you're absolutely right. Is that continuity connections is a very in, is a very important thing in terms of when you're writing the right the fiction that right now I'm I'm writing. I'm branch trying to branch away, but even so. Tying that back to Sean's story as the Hartnell, as the first doctor. Um, since I 
had to mourn essentially the 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 loss of the brigadier. Uh, I, I turned my attention to something else. I thought, where else? Well, I want to write still a Doctor Who story. I'm in this mindset, but I, I, can't, I can't touch the unit years right now. So not the Brigadier. But where do I go? Most, and I, I was so distraught, I thought to myself, well, if I think about most doctors, most of these doctors have met the Brigadier. But then I realized, but the first doctor didn't, on screen at least, in his own era. So I thought, well, I, I, I'm quote unquote safe. <laughs> I try not to sound so vulnerable, but I was so distraught. Um, that I thought I'm safe if I go into the Hartnell years. And so, and I also saw it as an interesting challenge because as much as I knew about watching Doctor Who and, and, and really absorbing all the knowledge of the series and such, I was fairly unfamiliar with the uh, William Hartnell years. And, and to a certain extent, uh, much less than I've watched all his stories, but you know, I'm still processing and absorbing his era. But it's, I'm behind the curve a little bit compared to other doctors, but I, I thought to myself, well, I, I want to write a Hartnell adventure. And so, and I wrote a prose version of this, some, you know, this background 2010. And, and I might as well take a moment, since we were talking about the, pre, the creative process, mm-hmm. before we get to Sean's involvement about you know, a decade later, how I wrote this story. Um, and this story is called The Misshapen Planet. Um, and I'll try to make it brief, but I'll give you a sense of my exercise. So I thought to myself, how do I write this story? Because the final game was fairly easy because it in a way already existed. At least there was an idea. And I knew, okay, it's set in season 11. And that way you know that you have the third doctor and you have the Delgado master. You have Sarah Jane Smith. You, those are guarantees, those three characters. You probably should have units so the Brigadier and you know, Sergeant Benton. You normally think Mike Gates, but he's not quite around in season 11, but I still included him. So that was an interesting way of kind of, you know, making wiggle room with the continuity. Um, and then monsters. I thought, well, what would be good monsters? I'm talking about the final game briefly. Oh, well, it's got to be the Daleks, because the last time we saw the Master on screen in Frontier in Space, he was having an alliance with the Daleks. That's a natural outgrowth of the, con- of the continuity. So in the case of constructing, that was easy. That was easy to do. And then you write the story, but even so. In the case of writing The Misshapen Planet, I thought to myself, well, it's a little more of a wild frontier for me. But I still know the characters, so I thought, well, it's got to have the first Doctor. So I imagined myself, you know, setting up like a chessboard and then all your pieces. So I thought, well, you've got to have your first Doctor, so I put him on the board. And I thought to myself, well, what do I want to do with the character? I got into my head um, the idea of using the monk. And the monk is a character played by Peter Butterworth in the 1960s. And he, you might know, your readers, listeners might know him as an actor from the Carry On films. Um, I don't know much about them, but I know they were kind of funny blue humor films, you know, yes. mild, tame, from the 60s and 70s. Well, um, Peter Butterworth played a character called the monk, and he was notable in Doctor Who because he was the very first recurring they weren't called this at the time, but Time Lord, Renegade Time Lord, an antagonist of the Doctor. Uh, and I discovered the monk just because I was watching, finding Hartnell episodes online, not torrent sites. I don't do torrent sites, but I just I find them on, you know, Daily Motion or whatever. <laughs> and um, and I found that he was in a story called The Time Middler and that he made a return appearance in a story called The Dalek's Master Plan. Some and that was it. We and he just made those two appearances. Now somewhere along the line for me, I can't really pinpoint this. 
I really got interested in the idea of trilogies, three piece, or just a character appearing three times. Then he can appear again, but you've got to have that initial three part act, three act drama. But it was Smoke never got his third act, even though at the end of the Dolph's Master Plan, they leave it open saying, well, we'll probably see him again. Well, so I thought in my head, I, I should do a story with the monk, uh, give him his third adventure. So I put the monk on my chessboard. So then I think to myself, well, when is this set? It's got to be set after the Dolph's Master Plan. Um, should I set it maybe with Ben and Polly? So between the smugglers and the 10th planet, I thought, no, I'd like to maybe do a, I have a story idea where the ma- they meet the master, which I've never written. Mm-hmm. But I thought, so let's not do that. Let's set a little earlier. What's the next gap? We're talking about wiggle room, right? Yeah. Well, well, then I thought to myself, well, let's set it between, let's set it with the, his companion Dodo, set it between the uh, savages and the war machines. But then I thought to myself, and this is important in terms of building character. I thought I'm robbing myself of some wonderful character conflict, which is the fact that in both of these two stories where the Butterworth monk appears, the time meddler, Nalak's master plan, the doctor is traveling with Stephen Taylor, as played by Peter Purvis. So Stephen has all this history with the monk. If I set this after Stephen's departure in The Savages, I'm robbing myself of the chance of have a voice uh, in the character to be able to tell Dodo, the other companion, hey, this is who the monk is. And the character of conflict was we already know that Stephen doesn't trust the monk. He doesn't like the monk. He thinks he's, you know, you know, sneaky and all that. But what if, based on who Dodo Chaplin is, as played by Jackie Lane, and you see her in character sometimes wearing these weird costumes, like, you know, like a, a court jester or just a weird – she has a very weird dress style. What if she really likes the monk? What if she really likes the Butterworth? And they become fast friends. Then you have a conflict in between the, the two companions. I don't trust him, but I like him, you know, so to speak. So then I said, yes, let's set it between the gunfighters and the savages. So you have that set up. And then the last thing, I'll, well, there are two, two things more that I'll say. You need to have a good monster. So who else do you put on the board? I have the doctor. I have Stephen. I have Dodo. And I have the monk, the Butterworth monk. Who do I put on the board as a villain? I thought, should it be the Daleks? I thought, no, because if we're going by the continuity, Dodo never meets the Daleks. They say so in the war machines. Should it be the Sidemen? Well, he, the Doctor meets the Sidemen, the 10th planet. I don't want to predate that. So who else is there? I can't. I don't want to predate other things. So the Ice Warriors, no. The Santarans, no. Oh, then I realized there's one other monster that even now has barely been explored in Doctor Who, and that's the Vord from Keys of Marinus, the 1964 story, the Keys of Marinus, going back in the ways. So I thought, let's put the Vord on the board. We know almost nothing about them. This will give, you a, give me a chance to explore the characters. And the last thing on the board is, well, what's the conflict? What's something I can take that would bring these characters together? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I happen to be reading just, uh, as you know, astrophysics. I like astrophysics, mm-hmm. so I still like to check about stars and planets. There was an article that I discovered online that said that um, they discovered a planet, what they call exoplanets, just planets that might be habitable for life. That was uh, called WASP-112b, and it happens to be this large planet that's slowly uh, in a decaying orbit around a red giant star, and it's getting so close to that star that it's spinning. The gravity is spinning, making the planet spin so fast that it's starting to become misshapen. It's now kind of a, an elliptical shape, and that was it. I thought, well, what what could cause that? What could mm-hmm. cause such a planet to to, to become so? So torn apart. So then I, that's where I came up with the idea of the misshapen planet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that was the conflict. And it was just, and then it just wrote, the story wrote itself. It was like, last time we saw the monkey, he was missing his directional unit. 
And so let's explore the consequences of how he goes about trying to repair his TARDIS. So I've given you a crash course on how I try to think of these stories, right? Um, flash forward a decade. I'd written a prose version. Once I wrote the final game as a centennial for Roger Delgado's master, I wanted to keep going and, and write other things. Because see, we were right about that at that time where a lot of notable Doctor Who actors were kind of hitting their centennials. Roger Delgado in 2018, Peter Butterworth, I thought in 2019. It turns out he was born in 15. The point is, I said, let's do, let's make an audio of that. And so I wrote the scripts. And uh, just like with Marshall Tankersley, I looked online and we found Sean. Mm. Sean Hughes and Sean is incredible. He's wonder. He he's a he's very good. He's he's excellent as the doctor, as the, as the Hartnell doctor. So we just recorded the story and we're in the process of trying to remaster it because we've never got the fourth part out um, online. It's a four part story, but you can listen to the first three parts and then imagine how the fourth will be. And eventually we'll get it out there. Uh, <laughs> eventually, but uh, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun to to write those two stories, the final game, the Misshapen Planet. And uh, find people that sound just like the actors involved. I found a great guy who sounds like Stephen Taylor, a girl that sounds a lot like Jackie Lane, um, of course, and a guy that sounds a lot like Peter Butterworth. It was it was just a joy to write stories like this. I mean, just from a standpoint of when you were discussing the and what I think everybody will find is a good takeaway. Because the, the thing I wanted to say is, what advice would you give to people who are trying to do what you're doing? But you were talking about the complexity of keeping things on track and all the things you have to build and put in place to create the stories. Now, interestingly, I also wanted to ask you uh, about the fact that you said you were getting people who can do mm-hmm. the perfect version of the voices. So the question that is on my mind and that's on everyone else's mind is, how do you find them? How do you do this, Chris? Because you've done it so well. What's well, thank your, you. Um, what's your, your your magic trick, so to speak? <laughs> well, it's it's largely sifting through all equally wonderful people, but people with um and an equal amount of talent. But sifting, just sending out uh, audition calls, saying because I have a Twitter page now, but you know, just putting on social media, I'm doing this story. Have these scripts written? And it's going to feature these certain characters, this set of characters. Um, I need, and then you kind of list these are the characters I need, and they are based off of this character from Doctor Who. Um, if any of you feel that you can, any person feels that you can uh, do a voice that sounds like this, feel free to audition. So you know, if you're very fortunate, like I was with these stories, you get a few people. Um, you get a few people that will do these stories. For example, for the Roger Delgado Master, I got a, several. It's certainly about four really good contenders. Then you listen to your the auditions, if they send you an audio, uh, a little snippet of audio. And you listen to how they sound. If they're very close, or at least close enough, you work with, I work with them and say, okay, can you do another take and try to do this voice differently, that voice differently, or can you just listen to a lot of the character and then try to copy their voice? If they sound good, in general, I mean, they have a clear sound, or they just have a very good voice or something, but they don't sound like the character you want, then you can say, well, you try this voice, and then you present yes. them with an audio clip of someone else. And if they just still sound good, but they can't sound like anybody in this, the main characters, you say, well, can you try this minor character? Or can you, or can I? Then I think to myself, well, I don't want to turn anybody away if possible especially if they're enthusiastic and want to do something. I think, well, then can I write a character? Can I add a character into the story that uh, could 
be anyone, but, you know, sound like, you know, in my mind, what this person, this actor, how this actor sounds. And then it's just a refining process. And then you just kind of get to your last few contenders. And then, and, you know, the, and those that don't uh, work for the main character, you kind of repeat the process. Well, can you try this character? Can you tr- Can I write a character for you? And such. And then when you get to your last person, and if they're close enough, then you just kind of refine, keep refining. Okay, can you listen to the character? Can you listen to as many of the stories as you can? Watch the stories as you can. And really, or if you have the audios, listen to the audios. And um, just really get your mind around how the character sounds. And if they're, if these people have some acting ta- um, experience, they have talent, of course, but they have experience. They then bring to the table, okay, well, this is how I, you know, get my head and around and my mouth around the character's voice. Um, so really it's just auditioning, it's finding people who will, who will do it. I, I should say one other situation. Sometimes you'll have a lot of people that can do it and are willing, but you're not finding anybody that, that yeah. fills the voice. At that point, it's just persistence. It's just persistence and going out there and still ca- throwing casting nets and still trying to find people, never giving up and never thinking, oh, it's a lost cause and never lowering your standards. You'll find someone. I, I personally say, now not saying, oh, well, I'll find someone who sounds okay, who sounds, who maybe a good actor, but they sound a little bit like, like the character. No, I found that if you keep your standards saying, I'm looking for someone who sounds this way, you'll find someone that, especially if it's Doctor Who, someone who has, you know, the, you know, it's taken a while and, and done all these voices and done these characters, and maybe they haven't said so yet. You might make make friends who say, "Well, I know somebody who can do a very good voice, or she can do a very good voice." Just never giving up and never lowering your standards, and that's how you. Uh, that's a good way to live life, I think. I think that's an exceptional way of looking at it. Because just thinking, you said it when we, because I've done some small elements of work for you, but when I was when you you reached out to me to look at Jeremy Brett, I had to be honest and say. I could not hit the required areas. And you're right. It's not about, and that's the thing that you instilled in me. I could not give you something that was close. I would have to give you something for both myself and you that was perfect. And it's knowing that you cannot hit, you cannot hit that level. There's no point giving you something that's, you know, half cocked, is there? It's going to be of no use. (laughs) (laughs) I understand it. Yeah. But the other thing you said that was very that I wanted to ask you about was obviously you you know when I kind of segued on it going discussing Sherlock Holmes, but obviously you have an interest in doing things to do with Doctor Who for your audio work uh, and, and other areas of that work. But what do you find is that is is a drawback to being within that universe? You know you are kind of limited to that universe to a degree. And I remember discussing that with Simon Furman about his work on the Transformers comics as an author. How do you deal with certain parameters that are set out for you that you cannot deviate from? Well, sometimes uh, there are a few things. Sometimes, and this is not a, and it's not a necessarily a restraint, but it is a constraint, uh, and therefore it has to really you have to flex your creative muscles a little bit mm-hmm. is sometimes if you have characters that don't have never met on screen, you have no, you have no context for how they would interact with one another. For example, uh, the Jeffrey Beavers master, the masters played by Jeffrey Beavers never meets on screen. Um, Leela, he never meets on screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, both actresses who play Romana, the Mary Tam or um, um, Lala Ward. Leela, but 
And then you think, well, what do you do about that situation? Well, the, the, the Big Finish audios are a good resource because they have plugged a lot of gaps. Um, Jeffrey Beavers for several, on several stories, in several stories has met up with Leela. So if I were to ever say, I want to write another story where Leela meets the Jeffrey Beavers master, I can listen to those audios and get a good sense of how they interact. But, you know, Mary Tam has passed away, so they'll never do an audio uh, with Mary Tam's Romana, unless they recast her. But for now, let's just say, they're not doing that. And they still haven't featured, there's no television story where Lala Ward's Romana meets the master, and they still have, have not done an audio where that's the case. So I would have to construct on my own how would they interact. I mentioned Romana because I have written a story, not produced or anything, but it's called The Constellation of Destruction, set in season 16, so key to time between the Stones of Blood and the Azores of Tara. And Romana, Mary Towns Romana, meets the, um, the Beaver's master. And so I thought to myself, Okay, I have that constraint. How do I work with it? So I have the characters and have they how they interact. Um, how would Romana interact with the master? Well, I think let's make it a reflection how she interacts with the doctor at that time. She's often psychoanalyzing him. She's you know very cool, not mean, but she's a bit dismissive and haughty towards the doctors. She sees him as very childish and very you know infantile and infant and such. So she would probably interact in a similar way. If the master's a reflection of the doctor, she would interact in a similar way. So she wouldn't be saying, oh, who are you? And he, he would be able to say, I am the master and you will obey me. You know, she says, oh, yeah, you're you're this guy. And but of course, you like to be known as the master. And so she presents a much more cool, unflappable demeanor. But other difficulties, that's something where you can deal with. Other difficulties are what I mentioned maybe a little while, a few minutes ago, which was in trying to create the, the layout, the chess pieces, so to speak, of the misshapen plan. I thought, well, let's have Dodo meet the Daleks. But I thought, well, I can't. She explicitly says in the War Machines, she never met the Daleks. So unless you do a mind wipe story, which is kind of cliche at this point, I can't. Ha- I can't. That is very cliche. Yeah, <laughs> it's very cliche. And to be honest, Big Finish, for very good reasons, they are. I think are. I'm not saying speaking against it so much, but they are at a point now in Big Finish's time where they are pairing together characters which you never met, and perhaps because of continuity, could never really meet. So it's often done in these time warps or these mind wipes. Um, and that's it's if that's the route that you take, it's the route you take, and that's fine. But it is. Now it's a trick that's so you so used that the audience will has to know. Well, they won't remember the characters won't remember this. And if you don't want to take that route, then you have to say, well, then I can't go that route. I can't take uh, create that pairing. And if there's anything else, you know, you know, it's probably just variations on that. I will say something else, which is. Something like the monk. And the mm. difficulty is the constraints that you have, right? The farther away you get in something like Doctor Who, you have so many doctors and so much of it, so many eras. If you were to treat the in a linear way, if you treat the progression of Doctor Who as like a as like a, 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 you're driving a car and you're driving along an endless or at least a very long uh, road. And you have little milestones or signposts along the way. And if each signpost represents a story, a known story, like a television story, an audio story, book, whatever, you know where you are. 
and you know you can navigate towards the next signpost. With something like the monk, for example, characters that are very underused, um, you have some signposts. You have two, certainly, in the Hartnell years. You've got the Time Middler. You have the Dalek's Master Plan. I wanted to create another story, so I create another signpost a little later along the line in the road of the Hartnell years. But I'm able to do that because it's fairly close to the other two, and I could base it upon what came before. And Big Finish have used the monk quite a lot in some of these other stories. But before they did, before they did, I had thought to myself, well, maybe I could have a story with the monk in, with, the, with, with Tom Baker's doctor or maybe Colin Baker's doctor or whatever. But I thought to myself, I have no idea. How, never mind how the characters interact, but I have no idea what the monk has been doing since the Hartnell years. There are no, there are very few signposts along the way. There's a comic with Davison from the 80s and a couple of things, but the point is there is such, at the time, not now, Big Finish have really put the signposts down, but before Big Finish did, there were no, there were such gaps for the monk that it was very daunting to think of what, what kind of back history can I create for the monk? Post, the story that I wrote, The Misshapen Planet, where do you go from there? What's he even doing in the Trout years, let alone what's he doing in the in the Sylvester McCoy years? It's like it's too vast. So sometimes there is that daunting sense when you are when you have a, a such a large sandbox is that the, 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 the borders of the sandbox are 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 so vast that sometimes you it, it's not impossible, but it's very daunting to th- to to create a back history like that. And there and that leads me to one last point, which is this. Stories like mine, there's always a chance that if we're talking about a sandbox and building sandcastles and all mm-hmm. that stuff with your signposts, there's always a chance someone else can knock your sandcastle down. Uh, and, <laughs> yeah. and, that's, and that's really as much effort as I'm doing. I have no license. I'm, I, and, that's, and that at least another signpost, I can't make any money. It's not, I'm not really motivated. I, I'm not motivated by money. But, you know, you have to – it would be nice to be able to support yourself a little bit, right? So I can't make any money. But the people that can, big BBC or Big Finish, they're just like me in the sense that they're looking through all the history of Doctor Who and trying to find the wiggle room and spaces to add stories or have characters meet and um, and add to the continuity. But because they have the license, whatever they write – and I don't say this out of you know spite, but it's just true. There is a frustration that whatever they create will be the canon. And so if, if they write as they have, uh, they have if they write a story where say they do their version of the uh, of the final game, they haven't, they haven't. But if they were to say we're going to do a story called the final game, their version of the final game becomes the the, the real version quote unquote of the final game. And so I still have the memories, I still have the joy of writing it, but now it's. It's not the only place where someone can look to see, um, you know, how did the Delgado Master maybe meet his end in the Pertwee era? Big Finish have, uh, in, in the time that I wrote Times Champion, um, they have re- released a box set called The Sixth Doctor, the, final, the Last Adventure, which deals with the Sixth Doctor's fi- uh, further and final battle with the Ballard, which doesn't, you know, connect to Times Champion at all. Um, they've also done, in the time that I released most of, to be honest, the, the Misshapen Planet, they have done with Stephen Noonan as the first Doctor and Laura Cornelius as Dodo, they've done a story where where the Doctor and Dodo meet the monk. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
there and, and it has no connection to the um the misshapen planet so there is that sense of you know anything that i write anything that i do is in a precarious condition for doctor who certainly is in a precarious spot because very likely at some point with maybe especially when you deal with very established characters like returning characters like the monk or the master or the Daleks or something. Very likely if you deal with a missing piece story, if you, if you just read a story that is generic, well, it's probably going to touch. It won't affect anything. But if it's like a missing piece, what happened to the Delgado master? What was the next time that the, that the first doctor met the monk and so forth? Very likely someone like Big Finish or BBC or a book or something will come along and tell that story. Mm-hmm. before or after you tell yours. So there's always that sense that anything that I write could be wiped away, so to speak. And so that's, um, it's motivating, but it, there's always that slight sense, unsettling sense of, well, can, will I be able to countenance this anymore? Will I be able to quote unquote count this story anymore? So that's probably the hardest or the most um, unsettling element of doing this type of fan writing, which is that it could just be washed away very quickly. So it's both motivational and infuriating, I guess, at the same time. Well, yes. I mean, it is, it is in a way infuriating because I put a lot of effort in these stories, as does any author. You do. And, but the motivational element is this. I, it allows me, it compels me, if I so feel, to, to find further wiggle room to make the stories fit. Mm-hmm. One example, again, is The Misshapen Planet. Although we have, and this is a kind of a good thing that we haven't released part four yet. I've written part four in a certain way. Once the the big finishes story with the monk came out, which is called the Outlaws. Once that released, I realized, well, I have an opportunity to go back and rewrite a little bit of my version of the Misshapen Planet Part Four to allow a connection. And I and I did, and I I will just say this, and here's the cliche: it involves a little bit of a mind wipe. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, but not, but not quite how you might think. There are some interesting reasons. Uh, if the final game ever has a situation, maybe I could do something there. Times Champion, I'm already intending to do eventually an audio version of that, and then I would rewrite it heavily in such a way that it could fit. Because I want to do that anyway. I already have that motivation. So it is motivating in the sense of, well, if I want to preserve my stories, um, it gives me the foresight, which is okay. Write the stories in a way that they don't necessarily are. They don't necessarily become connected and dependent upon everything else, so that they could they become a house of cards and tumbling down if someone else, you know, you know, starts building their own house, their own situation. So it's uh, it's it's motivating to refine my work so that they can stand alone a little bit more, not be so dependent on continuity. Um, but you then you still take risks and say, but I still want to write this story. So write the story your way, and then if you have to change it, sometimes you don't have to. But if you if you really want to stand and make a change, find a way to make a change. Because um, we're all working together. It's not an equal playing field. I'm not going to pretend, but uh, it, it it helps me to up my game. It's how it works. Now that's all very good for you know you, you will have posed your bliss and thinking well. It's kind of amazing, as I said, that the the ability and the bravery that Sean, uh, sorry, that Chris is working with Sean and people like that, uh, you know, has had to create these audio uh, dramas. But here's the kicker: Chris doesn't just he hasn't just an audio; he has done 
the the initial start on uh, you know visual work, which I've seen mm. some of, and it knocked my socks off. It absolutely <laughs> knocked my socks off. Can you discuss any of that with us, or is that under wraps a bit? Oh no, no, I'm happy to discuss them um, because in my in my position, um, unless you, I find people very quickly. Um, like with the final game or something, there's I'm not really in a position to be able to keep things under wraps too much because I need help finding people. Mm-hmm. And there are there are really two projects that are happening right now that involve visuals. Um, I'll discuss one first because you've, it's very. You've done it again though, Chris. You've done the mind. I swear you must have psychic powers because I was going to say, <laughs> what upcoming projects have you got that you can tell us about? And you you immediately gone with it. So okay. Do tell. Thank you. Well, one of the one of them is live action. The other is animation. The live action is The Wedding of Sarah Jane Smith, to include the character of Brigadier Lethbridge Stewart. Um, I mentioned that what happened there in 2009, about four years ago, um, after years of thinking, what can I do to fix that, to bring the Brigadier to the wedding and meet the 10th Doctor? Um, through a series of amazing events, just finding people and, and wonderful, you know, just uh, – you can call them coincidences or you can call them, you know, maybe it's it's uh, Providence. Um, it's um, I I got into my head to um, meet some people at church who had uh, worked with deep fakes. One guy that I know who works with deep fakes, which is our, you know, just creating digital masks of of one face and then in, uh, and placing it upon another face. For example, one, one good example is that someone. Um. um took a scene from the movie Terminator 2. Terminator is, of course, played by Arnold Schwarzenegger, but they changed it so that it looks as if it's being played by Sylvester Stallone. Mm-hmm. Uh, as Stallone they are very good. It's, and it is an yes. area of concern for people, but the, the way you're yes. doing it is not something to be afraid of. No, no, I thank you, because, yes, it, it might be concerning for some in the sense of, oh, you could change all these videos, but but and change reality, so to speak, not exactly, but a recorded version of reality. Um, in my case, I realized that I had thought about what to do with the wedding of Sarah Jane Smith. And I initially, some years, a few years ago, wrote a, there is a novelization, like target novelization, not quite, but there is like a, a novelization of the wedding of Sarah Jane Smith. So I got a hold of a copy and rewrote it uh, to include the Brigadier. And I thought about releasing that, but I I thought to myself, you know, there's, again, there's no real audience or no impact for a book these days. Uh, sadly, because books are essential, but even so, I thought about maybe animation, but I thought to myself, yeah, but if I animate, I can't afford to animate the whole stories. So for me to animate this, you'd be switching between live action to animation, and it would look in- interesting. People think, oh, your heart's in the right place, but it looks fake, so to speak. With deep fake, though, that word shows up again. You can't just stick with live action. And so I... I realized it was possible, and so there's a series of events of getting costumes together, people together, assembling a film crew throughout 2019. Um, at the end of November of 2019, we filmed on a green screen soundstage in Orem, Utah, um, the, the Brigadier scenes for the wedding of Sarah Jane Smith. And that involved, of course, an actor in costume as the Brigadier, an actor in costume as the Doctor, an actor in costume as, as the Brigadier's wife, Doris, who we know would have been in the story. And even um, an actor and actress in costume playing Sarah Jane Smith for one scene. And we filmed across three days, two days on, on the 21st and 2nd of November, 
uh, on a on soundstage. And then on the 23rd, Doctor Who Day, as people say, we filmed in a, in a house location filming, which became the Brigadier's house, where Sarah J meets the Brigadier to invite him to the wedding. And I just scour the Internet and look through some of these Doctor Who magazines, trying to find out as much of the, the actual the original dialogue as possible. What would the Brigadier's role have been adapted it to our um, circumstances? For example, I think the Brigadier would have led Sarah Jane down the aisle at the wedding. But because the footage is kind of locked and it's Luke Smith doing it, you could, I think, remove him and place him with the Brigadier. But we just didn't have the means to do that. And so um, we adapted so that the Brigadier becomes the master of ceremonies. And but he's walking along down the aisle with them. Um, and so it's and that's what that's what's in the process. Now, COVID, of course, slowed things and finding people that have the post-production instruction skills took a while. But a couple months ago, I found a guy named Jackson Hayes, a wonderful guy and lives in Bountiful, Utah, about 30 miles south of me, to um, who has the post-production skills. And we're in the process right now of doing it. Uh, he's, done, he's doing the, the green screen composition and and using After Effects and such to you know merge everything. Part one is a two-part story. Part one is almost – it should be done maybe today or tomorrow or in the next couple of days, and I will export the file. And I'm going to send it to my deep fake guy named Parker Hinckley, and he'll start working on the deep fakes. And then we'll get part two done hopefully in the next month or so and and just go from there. And so it's deep into the post-production process, and once we get the, voice, the uh, faces done, we'll do the voices and then get some music. And uh, we'll have the wedding of Sarah Jane Smith fully restored to feature the Brigadier. And that's hopefully I, – I have a, a hope to release it this year for the 60th anniversary. So that's 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 probably my, my personal, like, most personally, uh, emotionally resonant project with me, the, uh, the wedding of Sarah Jane Smith. And the big thing I, I – I feel throughout this and i didn't want to save saying to the end in case i forgot to say it because it can happen it's hard to believe tadpoles but i i might as you know i've had long covid i do sometimes get the occasional memory slip still which is the fact that you are again a great example of perseverance 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 and having yeah. the the no yeah you know the person as i said it's perseverance again but also using your intelligence your interest and just keep going and going with it and i think that's a great example to people i truly do and what i would like to also ask is this how do you find the energy to keep doing it when <laughs> you've got a full-time <laughs> job here <laughs> well that's a good question i mean it's funny um i mentioned this animation project i might as well briefly say what it is which is simply please do, and yeah. what and to add, it will answer your question, what you just asked me. I'm also doing an animation project. We just started. We're very much ultra pre-production. But what we are doing is we are uh, animating Colin Baker's lost second season. So the Nightmare Fair stories, or Mission to Magnus, The Hollows of Time, Ultimate Evil, Yellow Fever, and so forth. Um, stories where we would have met the Toymaker, uh, the Ice Warriors, uh, the Autons, the Tractators, the Master, the Ronnie, and such. Um, and, and so we're, we're animating those stories and we're, we're deep into the, we're pretty deep into the pre-production for the nightmare fair. We have a lot of ca- character designs. We're about to move into character paths, which is where you rotate the character around and as the animation and such, you know, just showing how they look from front to back and to sides. And we're soon to get, we're starting to build, we're about to build our environments, uh, all, CGI, you know, but, um, 
mm-hmm. Blackpool and, and such, and the, and the quote-unquote studio sets. Well, one of the animators, he joked, he, I was talking with him, and, and he said, you know, Chris, I talked with this other guy, and we're trying to figure out if you're a hero or a villain, because he, when it, we, we live in Canada or far part of Canada or um, uh, or the UK or Australia or something, and yet whenever we try to get a hold of you, we can, we can get a hold of you. <laughs> And we haven't figured out if you even sleep or anything. So, but we we figure that you're a hero though. So think, and I appreciate it. Well, I just, well, look, I just make myself available because I am motivated. I know that as the overseer of the project and kind of head of the project, if I don't show total motivation, total commitment, and total conviction to, and fidelity to the project, that um, I set a bad example and the project would falter and perhaps fall, um, fail because you have to have someone always there, someone invested and present and constant and therefore people have concerns or questions or or um or considerations of of what to do with the project how to go forward or how to how to uh, just adjust something or 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 create something yeah i have to make myself available because i want to make myself available i want to be there because i love it i love these stories i love this uh i love doctor who i love the creative writing and so i I have to going back to diverted attention. I have to divert my attention away from it with my day job and with other things, family or, you know, just going to the store, things like that. But um, even the the persistence of keeping it, never forgetting and never taking for granted that it can fall apart if you don't make if I don't make myself um, actively engaged in in the project, the anxiously engaged. That's how I do this. That persistence, that that uh, serious commitment. And and it, and it, you know you don't want to burn myself out and say oh, I'm thinking about it every second well every day no I have other things I need to do but oh, when when the when I can do it and when I'm called upon I ha- I show that loyalty and that's this is how I I I, I manage the stories and obviously you can, I mean there's a multitude of other things we could discuss where you get the the you have an interest in work on uh, but I I always want to know from people and you you are. Someone who I don't think I've even asked you this privately. If you could work on anything, so it could be Doctor Who, it could be anything. If you could work on anything professionally, program, film, whatever, what would it be? Oh, good question. Well, um, if I could go anywhere in the world, uh, meaning distance wasn't a problem, I probably I would, of course, want to work on Doctor Who. If that's but but say it is a, a situation because I I live here and work here uh, a little more likely I probably would love to work on something like Star Trek even that's a little difficult so I think some of them they work in Vancouver but it's not terribly far for me so maybe if I could I'd love to work on something like Star Trek like Strange New Worlds or something um, it, very specifically though I would love to if I could do the continuity of Star Trek I'd try to say hey it's very clear that there's a Interesting storyline brewing about why the eugenics wars happen in Star Trek. I think Khan, we've come too far. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, with Khan, it's a sense of you watch these episodes and you think, well, why are, why, why is Earth doing crazy genetic engineering that kind of seems beyond their, it's sci fi, but let's just be honest, it kind of seems beyond normal human technology. But laying that aside, why are they doing a eugenics project? Why is there, Never mind the eugenics wars. Why were there was there even a eugenics project in the first place? And I think that you could tie you could tie that too. I think it's clear that it's somehow involved with data. You could tie it to data. You could tie it to the Borg. I think that um, 
maybe tied to V'ger. All I'm saying is that there's a storyline that you could do, that you could do well. So I'd love to work on Star Trek, but also working over their continuity and maybe making connections. Um, but I'm trying to think, well, I, if I could work, if time weren't a constraint, because I'm trying to do these Sherlock Holmes stories in the style, you know, of Jeremy Brett as a tribute to him, you know, finding actors sound like Jeremy Brett and Edward Harwood, I would love to go back in time to the Granada television series and just work on that, on those adventures, but somehow keep them going. <laughs> so maybe tell Jeremy Brett, hey, your, your health is not go- going to be very good if you smoke so much or something. Um, or any of this, or any, you know, of these stories I love. I'd love to, maybe not necessarily go back in time, but I'd love to work on Poirot. More recently, but any of these stories have ended. So you have that sense of whatever. Maybe work on Poirot, work on Inspector Morse. I would love to work on a show called um, Murder in Provence, which is, is mm-hmm. current, with uh, Roger Allen and uh, I can't think, uh, Na- uh, Nancy Carroll, I think is her name. Um, I would love to work on that show because it's absolutely the, the cinematography and, and the characters seem absolutely gorgeous and compelling. Um, but of course, at the same time, I would love to do my own original stories. And that's really kind of the goal is working in these sandboxes. It's not just simply to be safe, but to grow my skills in a place I know the most, like Doctor Who. Trying to branch out to something that I know maybe a little, still know well, but a little bit less, like Sherlock Holmes, Jeremy Brett Sherlock Holmes. And then maybe the next step is branching into something that I want to do, which is my own original material. Uh, after flexing my muscles and growing my my increasing my writing strength, so I I have plans there. I haven't, but I haven't really I haven't fully developed them yet. But I'm thinking about it. So that's that's what I would love to do, and probably in the real world, since just make my own material that can that can be commercialized. You can I can commercialize Sherlock Holmes, but the saddest, but I can't quite. Uh, achieve the satisfaction of saying this is my own creation and I'm creating my own continuity because it's fully known. Uh, it's another person's property that happens to be now in the public domain. I'd like to create my own public domain new property. So that's what I want to do, yeah. And if you could give advice to anyone who's wanting to do what you do, what would it be? Yeah, you know, amongst all the things we've said, perseverance and conviction and um loyalty to yourself and to others all the all the you know have your wonderful morals of course and and be a, a wonderful good person to to be a good example i say be a good example and through your example the one thing i would all i will also add is have your golden absolutes which means um you know have a code of conduct have a uh, have a have a a, a a morality that to which you adhere and to which you follow uh, I am a I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, so I'm a, I'm I'm a Christian. I have and I believe in the teachings of Jesus Christ, so I follow those. But have your golden absolutes, being hold to something that you know is true, and and hold to it for always. Stick to, stay to the path that you that you know is true. In terms of writing, to extend it to writing, have, be be absolutely fixed upon what you feel is right as a writer, um, and don't compromise. And never compromise your standards as on your moral standards, but also your creative standards. If you want to find, in the case of me, I want to find someone who sounds like John Pertwee, Roger Elgato. I'll, I can settle for someone who goes about halfway. No, no, don't settle for halfway. Settle for, don't settle at all. Go find the person that can do it. Best person to do it. And you will be able to achieve that. 
and in terms of what you want to write and how you write. If you say to yourself, like in my case, I don't want to write anything that ever has um, swearing because I have never sworn in my life. I don't plan to swear, <laughs> but I don't, I don't, I'll never write swearing uh, or excessive violence or explicit content. No, I will never write such things. So hold, those are some of my golden absolutes. People may have different opinions, but whatever your golden absolutes are, hold to those. And if you want to have characters that are true to themselves and true to the story and true to the conditions, like they're like not doing concept over character, but putting character first. If that if this is your golden absolute, always hold to your golden absolutes. Always hold to what you feel is true, and th- that means you're true to yourself, true to your beliefs, true to others, and therefore true to your writing. And I couldn't put it any better myself. So I want to know, Chris. For people who they may want to learn more about what you're doing, they may want to be able to give you kind of assistance with things. How can uh, your fan base get in contact with you and new members of the fan base get in contact with you? Wonderful question. Well, um, I personally don't use social media for, you know, browsing or things, but I will use social media for my these stories. You can find me. I don't know what you call it now, but let's just still call it Twitter or X or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> you, you can find yeah, it's, it's it's funny how it changes, but I, it seems to it's still be more or less the same. So through Twitter, formerly known as through Twitter, you can find me uh, at Black Glove Studio, and the uh, the uh, tag is at Studio Glove, capital S, capital G, uh, at Studio Glove, Black Glove Studio. Um, through, if you prefer Instagram, you can find me. I'm not. I'm, if you want to really find me, be sure to find me. Definitely contact me through the through Twitter, through comments or DMs. But if you don't use Twitter, you can find me um, at through Instagram at Black Glove Studio. It's Black underscore Glove underscore Studio. That's the handle. Um, if you don't use those, then use say Facebook, which I use probably even less to be honest. I never check it. Um, just a moment here. You can find Black Glove Studio. Uh, just that, Black Glove Studio on through Facebook. And um, I'm trying to think if I have, I don't think that, like I said, I don't use social media, media much at all. So those, except for these stories. So the main one would definitely be um, um, uh, Twitter and then kind of distant second and thirds would be uh, Instagram and uh, Facebook. And just search up, uh, search Black Love Studio on any of through those platforms. That's brilliant. Yep, and I'm sure that. Well, I'm absolutely positive to say that you'll get a following from the tadpoles. So all I can say, Chris, is you know, thank you so much for giving up your time to have a chat with me about the your whole process for creating things, the work you've been doing, and importantly, the future work you'll be doing. And I think. I say for, for myself and for those who listen, it is a very, uh, we've heard some very positive things. It gives you a very good kind of roadmap to follow in your footsteps and do what you're doing. So once again, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. And and as a final little farewell to the people, to everyone listening, if you want, if people are sound designers, if you can do sound engineering designers using, you know, Audacity or uh, Adobe Audition, I definitely would love to talk with you. Um, if, uh, and if anyone in terms of the acting right now can sound like, well, Jeremy Brett, but specifically like Jeremy Brett as he did in his later story. So the older, slower speaking, um, graver Jeremy Brett. 
And then if anyone could sound like Edward Hardwick, his version of Watson. And uh, I would say also anyone could sound like Charles Gray as Mycroft. Yeah, Mycroft is going to show up in some of these stories. Just the last stories that Jeremy Brett was never able to complete in the canon. Um, if you if anyone has those these uh, voice skills or just wants to get involved, um, please contact uh, me through the uh, web, the uh, social media sites that I mentioned. I can say yes, get in contact with Chris because I have done that and it's worthwhile because you get to get involved in some great stuff. So. There is nothing more for me really to say apart from we've been talking of Cod's Wallop and it has been wonderful. And thank you very much, Chris. You're very welcome, James. Thank you for having me and I hope to come back again soon.